Welcome to Mixtapes. I'm your host, Eric Stangler. Today's guest has done it all in the digital analog world. He's been with MasterDisc for over 40 years. He's done analog recording, disc cutting, cassette duplication, reel-to-reel, live in the studio, recording, songwriting, artist development. So excited to pick his brain today and learn so much about what he does. Welcome to the show today, Mr. Scott Hall. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on the show, man. I really do appreciate it. Uh, first question I always like asking all my guests, um, do you remember your first music memory that kind of got you into music? Well, music's got uh, several different layers for me, but the thing that kind of made it pretty obvious to me that I wanted to be creating and engineering music um yeah it was uh early uh, some some a variety of early memories with uh cassette decks um most people were content to just sort of put a microphone up and do the man on the street sort of interviews with a you know or, or home recordings with a cassette but i had a couple cassette decks and i would bounce from one cassette to another and add a track or add live tracks to a to a music minus one track while i was making another cassette and Blah blah blah. So I I started uh, way before I knew anything about engineering. I just figured out that if if I wanted to put myself in the into the recording, that was one way to do it. And so uh, that was early junior high school for me. So I was oh, experimenting wow. with this stuff, you know, way back. Oh wow! <laughs> now so the yeah the recording program I ended up going into sound recording program. Um, in upstate New York at Fredonia was was sort of in an odd way the come of course we talk about the Venn diagrams right so in one in one circle I had my you know music interest as a you know classical and jazz uh, trombone player in another circle I was really interested in electronics building things well more more at that time more I was more interested in taking things apart but you know how things how things worked and how putting things together. And um, you know the uh, you know the the the, the composition and uh, experimentation with music, you know, as a creative tool, sort of the third. And so this recording producing program was right at the middle of all of that. So so you were into that stuff before you picked up an instrument. Then is that correct? Because I'm assuming you had to pick up an instrument if you were a songwriter, but, right? Yeah, for that was that was actually like uh, uh, shit. What was that? Um, I keep telling. I say fourth grade. It must have been fifth or fourth or fifth grade. I started on trombone, and it wasn't. Uh, it was not. You know, it wasn't long after that that it started to find ways to things I wanted to record either myself or with other people. And I remember, jeez, and you know, in, um, in the ninth grade, we, we were exposed to a jazz ensemble, and over the summer, I wanted to. I wanted to. You know, I didn't want to stop working with a jazz group, so I. Um, borrowed some scores from the from the music department and invited some people over to the basement and attempted to run my own jazz ensemble but uh, it was a it was a, a distinct flop i realized how difficult it was <laughs> yeah yeah that stuff ain't but, easy but, but you know we we stopped and then went out and ju all jumped into the pool and and uh and called it a day there you go there you go so now so when when do you start i mean I, i'm kind of getting the picture but when do you start realizing that you know you want to get further into you know working with recording like in terms of you know obviously analog back then mics mic placement stuff like that when did you start getting into that i didn't have a lot of access to that i was, I was very curious but didn't have a lot of hanging around time doing that um, before i went to school so it was it um i don't, I don't remember exactly when that clicked um that it was a, a, a. I think what it was is when I learned about the the, the, the sound recording technology program that I went into. Uh, you know, the the course description was like, "Yeah, that's me." Nice. <laughs> and so that was kind of when it clicked because I was really not quite sure whether I was going to whether I should go into a trade school, whether I should go to a music school, or whether I should, uh, uh, you know should get a real you know get a real job get a real job right we've heard that before right <laughs> my father my father was an IBM or never really pushed me hard into one way or to, into science or, or or whatever but didn't you know uh, didn't push me hard into music but didn't discourage me from you know from from any of that as well so it was a 
uh, it was kind of an open, kind of an interesting thing though, but it might be appropriate for people listening. I was really at a, at a, at a uh, I have quite an avid um, hobbyist um, with with uh, with anything of <laughs> petrol powered, anything <laughs> uh, boats and cars and motorcycles and and such. Uh, like to take them apart, like rebuilding them, like um, customizing them to some degree. But um, there was a really a point uh, before college where you know I remember having a conversation with my father that was that went something like, "Well, we can either pay for your your college, or we can use that money to." you know, you can get a trade and you can get set up in a, in some sort of business. And at the time, auto repair and auto, you know, auto customizing seemed like what I wanted to do. And I, um, I it was our decision to make, but it was, I made it based on a wardrobe, basically. I, I, I didn't, and the fact that by and large, the mechanics that I knew at the time were seen as kind of second and third class citizens. And they, you know, kind of talked like they were and dressed like they were. Um, <clears throat> I kind of like the suit, not the suit and tie, but I like the uh, I like the 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 wardrobe <laughs> of, of the musicians, um, both in uh, classical and jazz settings and and contemporary as well. But um, so it was a very a very um, vain uh, you know decision there. But I kind of look back on that as like yeah, um, you know, didn't didn't appeal to me to just be filthy all the time. Right. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't blame you. I'm not good at fixing things, unfortunately. So, um, when, what are you listening to at that time? Is there stuff that's jumping out at you at that time in terms of sonically? It was all, uh, jazz. Um, the people that I hung out with, <clears throat> I mean, we were listening to the radio, of course, and listening to pop music and things, but what we were what I was tearing apart and really studying and listening to was jazz going, you know, back into, into time, um, finding it really hard to understand, you know, experimental music at that point. Um, but we were, um, but also understood um, kind of the difference between, you know, can, um, jazz standards and and and, uh, and, uh, and sort of the easy listening the the palatable jazz um, formats and stuff so we, I mean, we got pretty cerebral about it I even had uh, you know kind of started to notice at that point that you know who was playing on records and started reading credits and uh, we'd get together and uh, friends would get together and kind of share our experiences with records that we had that we come across or uh, come across it, it's it was um it was a, it was a, uh, odd in that it wasn't until I got into college then and started mingling with other people and started recording bands, um, rock bands that you know kind of then started the process of learning the rock history you know backwards, um, and and uh, figuring out where that where that happened and then that time also the uh, school was a fun time to um, to kind of expand your horizons. I uh, had a, a, a number of experiences with uh, contemporary and experiment experimental music and electronic music and things like that, and so that kind of you know opened up a whole another horizon of of style and and uh, uh, composition and, and musicianship that was really unlike the jazz and classical that I that I had uh, experienced up to that point. What uh, what years is this when you're going to school? <clears throat> Graduated high school friend. in eighty. Graduated college in eighty four. So it was you oh, know, early, yeah. early to mid eighties. Yeah, yeah. So you have a lot of that new wave synthesizer stuff. You've you've gone through a lot of the the seventies rock stuff. The the you get like early eighties heavy metals coming in. You've got a lot of different stuff that. So so when you're recording bands in college, um, what type of bands are you recording? Well, I hadn't quite, uh, you know, the college music was was on the, the the fringe, you know, was was happening around the world, but you know, in our little uh, our little world up there, it was still it was basically a lot of, of singer songwriter kind of things. But but progr or, uh, progr bands wanted to sound, you know, like progressive rock. Uh, that was it was pretty big at the time. Um, it wasn't really metal bands uh, per se. You know, hard rock was was kind of where that was uh, extreme. Uh, things were going well you know we weren't really looking in the in 
uh, in that realm of that program, we weren't really looking for a style of music to record. Some some others, some other students were. They were very spe- very specific to the styles and influences that they wanted. I have always felt like I was a chameleon, like I could easily uh, talk to uh, somebody and communicate with and appreciate uh, um, traditional jazz or or early um, uh, Americana or um, American songbook. Uh, uh, classic stage theater crooners, um, you know, through um, uh, swing and bebop, you know, to, you know, I, I just never really felt like I was an outsider for, for or or didn't get it, you know, um, or at least if I didn't get it initially, I, I you know, I learned my way into uh, understanding yeah. each of the genres that I expo- got exposed to. And that makes you really valuable too, because, you know, with all the music styles that you just described, you know, there's a lot of different, you know, ways you can go about recording, mixing, you know, those styles of music. There's different ways you're going to use mic placements or there's different ways you're going to approach mic and a kid or if you're doing a, a big, you know, a big band, how are you going to mic the room? Like there's so many different things you're learning. You learn a lot of that stuff on the fly from the school where you were you one of those guys that was sought after in terms of like, were you getting a reputation in terms of bands reaching out to you, like hearing material that you had recorded in college? Um, no, not so much. Um, we were kind of isolated and, and that wasn't really where my, you know, my, my break, you know, sort of came. Uh, for me, it was, um, uh, for me, it was work that work ethic that set me apart from you know maybe uh, two thirds of my other classmates. Um, I was, um, yeah, I was always there. <laughs> I was literally at the studio so much that when it came time for them to need a night manager, they just gave me a key. It's like you're you're always here. Might as well you might as well just have a key. <laughs> and Perfect. and then so. Th- I, you know, when I was just sitting there kind of killing time, I was reading the manual. So if something broke, I remembered how to fix it. Or I, I, I could swap it out with the one from the other studio that was working and could save a session. So I, I was in that kind of support role all the time. But I, I will back up for just a second, because the thing that I find most interesting and, and probably the most important from my perspective, with all the different genres, is how to communicate with the producer and artist in each of those different genres. Because having a conversation with a a string uh, quartet about their, you know, their experience in the studio, how they're going to record, where they're going to stand, how they're going to place themselves to the microphones, completely different conversation than a rock band, a three-piece rock band with two guitars and drums. Um, also completely different experience uh, in communication working with a jazz trio. Um, uh, just, and I could go on and on and on. Every one of them, it's the personal um, interaction. It's the fact that I can communicate to them that I, I, I um, well, I'm, I'm safe <laughs> to talk right. to. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to like, I, I enjoy the style of music enough that I can, understand what they're trying to say uh but also um i'm i'm there to interpret their in their um creation within the space not necessarily um um uh, set things back up the way i did it yesterday um uh, uh, I, I, that's why I, keep, I will continually kind of refer to myself as a chameleon because I, I i tend to not go back and do the same do it the same way a second or third time i mean i might start there but i i I'm, i just give myself complete freedom to reinvent the wheel um sometimes it's a little nauseating uh, uh because I, I don't really settle into a particular thing but it, it surprisingly led me well. Uh, the the attitude well kind of grew out also of the fact that a mastering engineer works on a, a, a quite quite a large number of projects over the course of a of a of a, a week or a year, um, more so than really any of the other disciplines in engineering. And so, if you're not a chameleon, if you're not trying to do a, you know a bunch of different, if you're not willing to really adapt yourself creatively into a lot of different styles of music you find yourself doing the same thing over and over and over again because you become you know the metal guy or the you know the bebop guy or the or the you know classical you know uh, uh, smooth jazz uh, person 
And um, um, I get pretty stale with that. So I've for, been fortunate enough that, uh, and I think it was a little self-generated and then self-encouraged <laughs> to, to, to have a, a really wide variety of, of people come through the door. I mean, we can literally have a, a pop metal band in, you know, or a project running through my console. And then an hour later be working on a minimalist, um, you know, a solo or a saxophone duet, you know, um, it, it, it's, um, and then, and then a singer songwriter thing, and then some straight, you know, pop country thing, and all within the same day. And it, it, it kind of, I actually, that doesn't, that doesn't feel awkward at all to me. What does is when I'm doing the same type of music over and over and over again, that, that because I can't rely on my instinct. It's like, I'm relying on, on sort of habit. I, I I find myself I find that I'm not listening uh, um, uh, the same way. That's really interesting. Um, everything you just said about that—that's really interesting because there's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of guys that are the metal guy or the, you know, or the singer-songwriter guy or the indie guy. And it and and I think you know, for me, I'm a musician. I play guitar and I try to play a bunch of different styles of music. For me, you know, the phone calls keep coming if I do it. You know, and to me, it, it's more exciting to not play the same thing, kind of like you talked about mixing the same thing or mastering the same thing. Um, let's talk about mastering for a little bit. Where did you, where did you make that transition from? And I mean, you do it all, but like mastering seems like the thing that is is your big thing. Where did you make that transition from mixing to mastering and having that that forty year career in mastering? Well, that was what was pretty fortunate and we'll go back to the school years because I literally came out of a four-year engineering program to an internship at MasterDisc oh, with wow. uh, and, and assisted Bob Ludwig um, for a summer. Um, and uh, that went well and was given an offer to come on as a mastering assistant, uh, which I'm, I'm using air quotes to describe mastering assistant because there wasn't such any such thing as a mastering assistant. And they acknowledged that we don't really have a job for you, but Bob kind of wants you to Bob kind of wants you to stick around. <laughs> and so, but what what I had done very deliberately. And it wasn't uh, 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 it wasn't this this uh, deceptive at all. What I really wanted to do, what I'd learned from working uh, with my father on on uh, projects at home and working with other uh, people and the jobs I had uh, as a high school student, um, was that uh, was to become indispensable as quickly as possible. And and one of the best ways to do that is to find the job that nobody else wants to do and then become really good at that. Right, right. <laughs> um, and it's, it's it, you know, uh, nobody was taking care of the lacquer closet to make sure it was neat and organized. And we were cutting lacquers every single day. It was like the lifeblood of the studio. But when somebody would need to know, are these lacquers from you know last week or are these the new batches? People would like, I don't know, where's Tony? Tony stocked the room. He's out for the rest of the week. How We have no idea. So, you know, I realized that, you know, it would be really simple to come up with an organization system and some labels. It started with post-its and then went on from there. I did the same thing in the, the storage room where we had a whole bunch of records, the records that we had cut. But when you needed to find one, it was impossible because there was just a wall full of records. Sure. <laughs> so I alphabetized them and put in letters. So if you wanted to find, you know, a, a, a Nightfly, you know, by Steve, by Donald Fagan, you could find it when you wanted to find it for reference and stuff like this. So those were little things. Um, there's sort of an endless little list of them. I just had a sort of a knack for looking around and seeing what wasn't getting done. And and I was free to, well, of course, I they, they I had tasks to do, but it was not like I was occupied the whole time. Uh, and, and probably to my benefit, there weren't cell phones, you know, and the addiction of sitting there, you know, all constantly being, you know, entertained. But I also, I like to learn by watching people do things. Um, I, so I, I, I could, I could literally watch somebody do um, a, a process with a table saw or do something with tools and they could walk away and, and I could repeat it. It was just, I, I, wow. but it wasn't, it wasn't natural. It was just, I had practiced that for many years. Um, and uh, didn't even know it was a thing. I thought everybody could do that. <laughs> right. And then when you realize they can't, then you realize you're I, onto something. Yeah. Again. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I, um, 
one of the other things that I did shortly after um, being hired is I took on, uh, well, there was this fortunate thing that happened where digital recording um, kind of happened around 80, uh, 83, 84, 85, and then the CD, you know, uh, started happening, you know, really right after that, but in very small amounts. I mean, vinyl was still the majority of our, of our workload, but we had all this new technology coming through the door that by and large, nobody knew how to operate. And um, I had the time to be able to sit down with the manuals and practice it and learn it. And so I became the, you know, at the time, the in-house uh, digital specialist, oh, the wow. guy who could, who they would call, it's like, um, how he needs the, the, the Sony machine set up in his room. Can you help him with that? Because, you know, he, the last, he did it three weeks ago, but he doesn't remember how to set it up. Or uh, Bill's got the you know, the JVC system set up in his room and, it, and it's it's not, the clock's not working. Can you help him figure it out? And so all the other engineers were busy doing their workload for the day. But I, I so this, when I said sort of assistant engineer in air quotes, it was, it literally was being really observant, figuring out what wasn't getting done and, and figuring out a way to do that. Um, um, and then, I, you know, ultimately the, the, the skill I think was, was just being, terminally curious about the whole process i just could could not I always wanted input <laughs> i always wanted more information and so i was that was really so um but to get back to the question the internship um i wasn't at school thinking hey i want to be a master engineer because quite frankly the only master engineer i'd ever been introduced to was uh, a fellow at uh, a small uh, um, local studio in Buffalo and we had a one day field trip to when here was this guy in this very small room with a set of monitors, uh, unlike anything else I'd ever heard. And he was, you know, cutting the master records, but it, that had, I was not, I didn't have any real set any designs on doing that. Uh, it just turned out to be uh, an opportunity to witness, you know, greatness in action, you know, every day. Um, God, I would, I would take up the whole rest of your podcast if I just tried to list the name of the artists that came through, you know, during the you know, first couple of years that I worked at Masterdesk. It was, well, for, it was for, insane. For the listeners, give us just uh, throw a couple names out for the listeners, if you don't mind. Um, well, Diana Ross, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Steve Perry, Journey, Sting, The Police. Um, did I say Bruce Springsteen? Yeah. Okay. Um uh, uh, then Chronos uh, uh, Jazz Quartet, um, the entire Nonsuch Explorer series was mastered by Bob. So we would see, um, you know, every month a new recording, field recording done from some faraway place on the planet. Um, new World Records, oh, um, uh, Jazz, Fire Jara, um, uh, and then the birth of hip hop and, and uh, urban uh, music. Um, Jamaladeen Hakuma, um, Beastie Boys. I mean, I just, wow. it's just, it's kind of nuts. I, I'm not even, I, the, fortunately, I kept some notes, but, you know, if I had really kept a diary over that first two years, it would have been insane. But I, I love experiences. Uh, so I, you know, I've really, uh, you know, hands on working experience with Lou Reed that was really awesome, and David Byrne, who had been by for a couple of projects. And, and then a moment I'm in the room doing an edit, uh, you know, this was a few years later, but doing a, um, uh, um, uh, 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 a, a live um, compilation um, for with and for Eric Clapton, who was sitting in on the session as we put together 24 nights, and Robbie Robertson walked by the open door, and wow. they were Eric, Robbie, and they were like, <laughs> wow. and and I and I distinctly remember sitting there. I love telling the story because I just remember sitting there really still, thinking to myself, if I don't move, they won't realize I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Fly on the wall, right? And so that was that was my thing. I I liked. I find, tried to get myself, you know, invited into the room, and then once in there, I wanted to stay. You know, yeah, so to see as much as possible. How would you not, right? And and, and like tapping into the artist's brain, right? Watching them create, watching them, watching them use their ears to listen. You know, when we're talking about mixing, I mean, artists are really not around for mastering, though, right? I mean, that's basically you're doing the mastering job and then sending it back to the artist or the label, correct? That's kind of the typical thing today. Back then, uh, they're at that level. Uh, at the you know, uh, 
Well, it's always been multiple tiers, but at the you know at the top Billboard 100 kind of level, the producer uh, for certain came to the mastering session, and often the artists came along as well. Oh wow! Um, they were also at a pretty tight time crunch, so they didn't have a lot of time for approvals. They would often sit and listen and make their decisions and judgments right there on the spot, and uh, take a reference home. That have one listen to it at home, approve it, and it would be off to the plant, you know, within a few days. So there was there was usually a pretty tight time crunch on those types of projects. Um, but we've always had, and and still do have a um, a large portion of our work is um, sent in, um, in you know, in we communicated in one form or another. You know, do your thing is so often said, or or you know, people would might send me a couple pages of notes about what they want to achieve. And that's because of technology, right? Because technology makes it easier now for for that to happen. Would you Would you agree? Yeah. Well, it's also a decentralization. I mean, back in those eighties, late to, to late eighties, you know, if you were uh, if you were uh, there were mastering studios kind of around the world, but the kingpins of you know Bernie Grumman's uh, started. Uh, um, George Masson, George Marino, uh, Ted Jensen, Bob Ludwig, um, you know, there, there were pockets of of these high-end studios in LA and Nashville and New York. Um, <clears throat> not to leave out, you know, any other major cities like Detroit and Chicago and such, which also had good mastering houses. But um, the work was being done, you know, near where the labels were. Right. So if your label was, you know, out of Seattle, you know, you, you know, you probably used a mastering house that was in Seattle that, you know, that, um, you know, that, 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 that kind of same across the world. But technology um, let us spread, uh, let the professionals move uh, to other places and work where they choose to work. But back in the, in the day, it was we needed to be where the labels were. If we Oh, so you do a lot labels. of flying out then to like. If you were to work with somebody, you'd, you'd go to Seattle or go to L.A. and you'd, you'd master in that studio? I only, I only know one mastering guy that made a, a much of a career doing that. Dave, okay. David Koch had a sort of a mobile rig. No, I mean that you, you wouldn't really get chosen. You wouldn't likely get chosen to master an L.A. record if you were living, if you were working out in New York. Um, that makes sense. This was back in the day. I mean, uh, let me put it in perspective. Um, sure. Hugh Padgham, you know, Hugh huge um, record producer from the from the 80s Phil Collins Genesis you know uh, just just to scratch the surface they would literally finish a a, a, um, a Genesis record or a Phil Collins record and get on the Concord from London and fly to New York to have a mastering session with Ludwig and fly home on the Concord with reference discs later that same day wow so they they were coming to whoever they wanted to work with, and that that was the extreme. But the same thing would be with a, with Springsteen or with the with with any of the the big projects. So I, I mean, names kind of flop into my head from time to time that I haven't thought of. But you know, Brian Adams or or uh, Joe Joe Jackson or or Joan Jett or you know just. We would stick with the J's for a little while. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's, you know, that's, it's so cool to peel back the layers. I don't think a lot of people understand, especially, you know, like your younger musicians. I don't think they understand everything that goes into the recording process all the way up to the mastering and then the production, you know, getting getting it out there on vinyl or cassette or, or CD or digital nowadays, right? I mean, you know, like streaming services. And I know there's different mixes and masters for those type of things. Um, let's have some fun. I know this is going to, this is going to, uh, I, I get a great conversation out of you right now. Uh, volume wars. Well, it's, it's actually a little disappointing that, that with all of the innovation um, and uh, loudness normalization and what's going on with, with streaming services. Um, it's a little disillusion that we haven't had more, um, uh, we haven't corrected the situation. I mean, right. Quite frankly, we still have a, an extreme uh, volume discrepancy between what the client thinks is appropriate and what actually works well on the streaming services. Um, and we literally have two different camps of clients now, ones that actually buy into and understand what LUFS metering and what that target actually means and how to use it. 
And the others that are just don't care. I don't care. This thing goes to 11. It's going to have it's going to have to be louder. We're not going to accept it. And then there's I guess there's a third camp that's that's more of the second, but like trying to accomplish the target level, but just simply turns down the master fader after crushing the living crap out of the recording. And so they end up with a minus 13 loves target, but they, you know, but the music doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't sound good. Um, I, I refuse to sort of preach. Don't, don't try this at home. I've always, I've always um, refused to be that person um, because it, 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 music is, and, you know, and, and uh, art is all about your self-expression and creativity. So, quite frankly, do whatever the heck you want to do. But here's what's going to happen to your music when it gets streamed. And and so decide whether or not that matters. And um, for some styles of music, uh, it, it, it absolutely it seems to be working quite well for them. I mean, you can't actually point a finger at any of the big um, successful pop artists and say, well, if they, you know, hadn't crushed their music, would they still be a superstar? And, you know, you, you it's, it's impossible to answer. But um, the, the the answer with all of this is um you know try to be educated and try to understand what you're doing to the music and what you're losing in the process one one, one thing i usually talk about is compression and especially this uh, peak limited uh, normalization that were that causes mixes to be loud or allows you to make things really really loud it's um I kind of equate it to to seasoning your food with salt. It's just like until something in your body tells you, like, wait a second, you're overdoing it. You just keep wanting more and more of of that. You know, it's 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 like uh, posterizing. You know, it's like balding out the colors in a photograph. Of course, it kind of looks better, but it takes an artistic person. You know, one who's had a lot of ref. You know. Uh, it takes somebody with some perspective to understand why blowing out the colors kind of spoils the, you know, the image. But in fact, this, the, the opinion is still the personal. <laughs> the, the person that likes the colors blown out is going to keep liking the colors blown out, even if you, even if you tell them that it's not a good thing. So I, 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 I wonder if you're hearing that there's really two opinions here. It's like, I, I would, I would like to go back to the days when we didn't have to, talk about you know loudness being um you know how many how few how few a db a headroom we're really capable of working with and we could get back to making things sound good without making them loud um because it's still my opinion that if you do that first you don't have to make the music as loud to make it sound loud so right. this this back in the day of of, of all analog um, productions uh, analog tape and analog mastering for vinyl um, you made things loud um, with proper EQ and balance and perspective, like there'd be soft places in the song so that the louds would sound loud. And um, now that we've, we kind of make things loud by throwing a, a limiter on them and cranking everything up. Well, I, I, I'm not sure if I completed the thought about where it's a, it's um you lose perception over time and you don't notice how much compression you're getting used to hearing and, and you have to force yourself to get away from it um, so that your ear can hear it again. Um, if you're, um, uh, I'll tell a real quick little story because I thought it was appropriate at the time. Sure. Um, had been working on a lot of pop music and, and been studying what Bob was doing with his mastering and I was a junior master engineer, but was bringing in some of my own clients and a, um, a colleague, a friend of mine, uh, went to the same school that I did, had a trombone quartet record that uh, he said, yeah, you'd be the perfect one for mastering this. And I put it on and did my thing with it. And he goes, uh, Scott, why is it? It's so compressed. I can't, you know, it's like, doesn't sound, even sound like us anymore. It sounds like it's coming out of an AM radio. And I didn't think I had done anything all that dramatic to it. But what I had done was treated it like a pop record and not treated oh. it like it was an organic acoustic, you know, jazz, contemporary jazz record. And um, um, I realized that at that moment that I was I, I had grown a little uh, stale to um, uh, hearing compression. You know, uh, you know, 3 dB of compression was kind of the norm or more 3 dB or more was sort of the norm. And that just 
sort of sounded normal. Again, my, my salt analogy, if, you're, if your body is so, if your brain is so used to receiving that every time, you know, unsalted stuff sound, tastes very bland. But if you get off of it for a little while you know, and come back and realize that, um, you know, it, it, you, you, can, you can relearn the, that discrimination. And it works, our, our ears and our brains work the same way with, with, with music. Let me ask you this, and you might not know, but we'll, we'll try for a ballpark. Do you remember the band or the year that you started noticing that people were just the volume wars were getting insane? Like for me, it always seemed like, and I'm not throwing the band under the bus, but like Metallica seemed like where I started noticing that it was getting distorted to the point of where they were pushing it. That's that's what I remember. But was there like was there like a year that you start going, you know what, in 92, I started noticing this or 97, I started noticing this just for like a reference since you're a master of what you well, do. There's, yeah, there's, there's several layers to that. Um, it may take me a while to uh, unpack that all, but um, the loudness seemed to be, get, <laughs> I've got like three different examples that are from completely different um, perspectives. So one record that no one, very few people listening to this would have ever heard, but it was John Zorn, a contemporary uh, saxophonist and composer, did a piece called Kristallnacht. And it was a piece, um, it was a long format, um, um, uh, basically avant-garde jazz record. But um, it was a musical depiction of uh, the Holocaust. Of Kristallnacht is when all the churches were burned in, in Germany and uh, um, the synagogues and everything were destroyed. And it was a... Uh, Horrifying! All the all the stained glass windows were broken. That's what broken glass, crystal on. This thing, this recording, because to 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 achieve that visceral catastrophe, man-made catastrophe, right? Um, it was recorded. Um, there were uh, samples of high-frequency um, tones and distorted tones. There were samples of broken glass. There was. It was just absolutely cacophonous. And the only way he could be satisfied with the way this was um, to sound was for it to be painfully loud. It was. It was. I remember making that as loud as it physically could be made. Um, uh, and to be completely frank. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Bob was concerned about his hearing and put in earplugs to, to so that he could listen to the record, you know, without without damaging his hearing while he was listening to it. But then, then, then the next day, uh, John has a had a session with me where we would typically refine and assemble the CD master from from Ludwig's masters. And he turns to me and said, "You know, can we make it any louder?" Mm. And I like, well. No, no, it, it goes to zero. We're really not supposed to be, make it any louder than zero. And he goes, no, can you make it any louder? Is there any way to make it any louder? I was like, well, shit, yeah. I can turn up the digital gain. It's right. going to distort. And he starts laughing. He goes, we're worried about distortion. You hear all, you hear what's in there? We're worried about distortion. <laughs> so, you know, he all, I love John because he, he also is very, very serious about his music, but he also has a side of himself that doesn't even take himself seriously at times. Right. And I, I, think I find that really, really curious and endearing. But yeah, so that record was insanely loud, but um, but also had crazy dynamics. So, so Artistic, this, this builds, right? Builds and builds and builds and builds to this you know ridiculous climax, and then it's silent, and you hear this lonesome melody come out of the the ashes and dust, and kind of rebuilds uh, um, rebuilds the uh, the culture, uh, you know, essentially of, yeah. of, 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 of he was depicting. So that's one story of when too loud can, you know, it can't be too loud, and and that was probably. By today's standards, still not loud, loud, limited loud, but the the peaks on that were probably six to nine dB limited, so that that whole record could be insanely loud. Okay. Fast forward a few years to a garbage, uh, the band Garbage. Yeah, and they were um, really famous for their uh, terraced dynamics. They would have a kind of a song would kind of start kind of loud. But then we'd bump into a pre-chorus, and it would just be like, "Oh my God!" And it's so much louder. And it would that ter those terraces of dynamics were part of the style of their record. And so we did a bunch of microscopic, um, very deliberate and very careful game manipulations and mastering 
um, that were technically, you know, over the limit, you know, but were tolerated, but were carefully monitored so that, you know, the amount of distortion being added wasn't too much. But an interesting point there is when that song, when those songs would go on the radio, the, um, the at the time the radio compression would completely undo the effect of it and yeah. the softs would now be louder and the louds would be softer and I, I recall having a conversation with butch big about that um you're kind of uh, in horror I like oh my god i heard it on the radio and it was all completely inside out and again he's laughing kind of like well what are you going to do i mean that's <laughs> it's at least it's at least it's dynamic <laughs> well the- he's famous for that too right because he recorded yeah. nirvana and uh, I don't know if he did the Pixies too, but like that lot soft dynamic thing of like the late 80s, early 90s was a big, big yep. proponent of of the, that musical style and culture. So that's it's interesting. And but you're talking artistic, right? Both of these examples are artistic stuff, right? Um, yeah, give, me your, so, give me your third example. Well, it's when it's when it's um, when other genres start to wonder about you know, why their records sound softer than other people's records. And and I've got a couple of, um, which, uh, um, I had, uh, uh, I met Stilly Dan back in, in, in Buffalo um, years ago, um, not Stilly Dan, I'm sorry, Spyro Gyro, years ago in Buffalo, I had a, got a concert. Turns out, you know, Ludwig mastered several of his records. Years later, I'm working on my in my own studio, and I get a call from Beckenstein. So I do a, I did several uh, records mastered for them, and at one time, they came in with a record, and it was it was literally a conversation like, "We do not want our record to be the softest record, uh, you know, out there anymore. We're we're tired of being labeled as as you know, it, you know, just jazz level guys, you know." So. We they started producing and recording and producing with intent, you know, for loudness. But um, and then and then in a very similar way, um, a fairly recent, about five, no, I guess that's a more like six, seven year old uh, Donald Fagan record, um, Sunken Condos. Um, when Donald came in for the mastering on that record, he goes, "I'm tired of being the softest record in the collection." And like, what are we gonna? How are we gonna fix that? I was like, well, you're gonna have to let me use a compressor. And it goes, yeah, I know. All right, well, do it, and we'll we'll see how it sounds. Because the previous three or four records that I'd done with him, he wouldn't even let me say the C word. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Compression was just not because it 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 wasn't how he heard. He heard the sounds with all of their articulation, you know, the, sure. the, the clank of the Fender Rhodes and the snap of those drums. And that's what makes their records their records. But uh, um, if you want to compare, you know, um, like a Nightfly to um, to Sunken Condos, you'll, you'll hear a real difference in the um, average level. It's definitely has more of a modern market mass appeal. Uh, that was deliberate. That was the artist's intention. Um, um, I, I kind of know where you're wanting to go with it, but I, 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 I um, um, it's, it's a, a question. question and, and yeah. I've been kind of, and I've been kind of avoiding the, you know, the, the specific throw, you know, uh, record on the bus. Well, of course, Death Magnetic became a record that everyone talked about as, yeah. as, as because the master mastering engineer must, you know, really overcooked that one. And then of course the story comes out shortly after that, that record was actually, you know, brutally limited in the mix phase, and that the master engineer literally did, you know, did almost nothing to to make that uh, worse, and in fact, actually kind of helped the process. Um, it's, I think, if, I, I'm going to lump those all in with the conversation. Like, you get so used to hearing things loud that you don't know how loud they are anymore. You don't have, you've lost your that that sort of reference. Um, I like going back to a record that I um, that was again right in that same period with um, with uh, garbage and with uh, black crows, um, a rage against the machine, um, um, uh, killing in the name of uh, the song. Um, I've forgotten. I, I remember the cover, but I can't oh, it's just the... so, it's just a self titled. The first record, yeah, okay, yeah. That's why I always called it uh, by that, that that one of the hit songs there. But um, that record just sounds so good when you turn it up completely and agree. it was it was loud for its time but that's what i find in common with the garbage record and uh, 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 shake your money maker black crows and with that uh, uh, um, 
Um, and I've done a couple of my own uh, uh, masterings uh, since then that are from analog sources that have this kind of like, they sound pretty good at normal listening level, but when you turn it up two clicks, it's like, oh yeah. my God, this yeah. sounds so good. And it's, you don't get that from uh, the hyper limited and hyper compressed stuff. You, 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 you turn it up and it, and it's, you're at a you're pretty closely at a pain threshold and 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 i and i know i sound like i'm old but you know it's, it's just, you know well if it's <laughs> i remember the t-shirts from from when i when i was a teenager if it's too loud you're too, you're old. too old right <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it's 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 not really that it's that you're you've thrown away so much mature so much um, um detail and energy that it just doesn't sound good anymore it it's like, um, oh, geez, I guess I, I haven't had lunch yet, so maybe there's too many food analogies today. But, you know, it's it's like a Sour Patch Kid, you know, uh, of candy that just attacks your senses. But, you you know, you know you're not going to binge eat those things because they just kind of wiped your your senses out, you know, for you know, for a little while versus a. Um, a multi-course, you know, Japanese cuisine thing where each one of each item is just bursting with flavor, but doesn't wipe you out. It's, that's, you a know, it's like, that's a great analogy. And 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 it, let me ask you this. If you remember, if, if, if it happened, um, if you didn't get a chance, then obviously you wouldn't be able to tell me this. But did Fagan like the record later in time? The one that he did where it was compressed? Did you, did you ever get feedback later on from him where or read an interview where... He he didn't like that record because he was almost like forcing himself to push the 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 volume up the compression up too much. Did you ever hear anything? I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not aware of, of that. And um, his subsequent records I, I, that I, I, that uh, that I've that I've heard I haven't heard all of them, but the subsequent records that I didn't master uh, have a similar kind of uh, nature about them. Um, interestingly enough, the early, early records, um, you know, had, uh, you know, the, the 80s, 70s and 80s um, records of theirs were, you know, crazy dynamic and had lots of transients. But um, um, Through Against Nature, um, you know, actually kind of came in already pretty, com pretty well compressed and kind of ready to be uh, ready to be uh, ready for mass consumption. Um, I, I, I've often been surprised to go back to that record. There's a ton of detail in there's space and air, like a Staley Dan record, but it's also pretty loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, a couple of times I've been surprised. Um, I was asked to uh, to cut the uh, of, um, a couple different versions. So, um, uh, uh, one for um, uh, acoustic sounds and, and another for uh, for the label. Uh, cut cut vinyl. Uh, on that record and it reached out to me because I mastered the original. And um, in both cases, the, you know, the loudness of that record was not, um, um, well, it's not loud, loud like a rock record. Um, it's kind of funny. I, I'm trying, I'm hearing myself talk about loudness and realize that only mastering engineers talk about loudness the way we do. <laughs> <laughs> This is good. This is it's, good education, man. This is good. Education. It's, I, I mean, if I, I guess I could say to the listeners, if it just doesn't make any sense, um, um, it, 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 that's correct. <laughs> Some I, I, of the stuff when you're talking about loudness just doesn't make any sense until you spend, you know, 10 years or so you know, listening to music in, on a single set of speakers and trying to please a wide variety of clients over the years. Let me ask you this. Um, and this is for any aspiring listeners that want to get into this field, whether it's mixing or mastering. How do you take care of your ears? Like, how do you avoid ear fatigue? Um, give the listeners an idea of, of, of what you go through to protect your ears or like are sessions shorter nowadays than they used to be with you taking breaks? Um because ear fatigue is definitely a real thing. And I don't think a lot of people understand yeah. that. So. Well, it's, it, boy, it's, it's actually pretty simple. Understand the signs of your own ear fatigue and stop and take breaks. It's, it's uh, if you don't recognize that your sensory, that your perception is dulling um, or that you're not able to hear quite what you were able to hear, you know, 20 minutes ago, 
you're just going to keep going and you're going to keep turning the level up to compensate for the fact that your eardrums tightened up and your brain's starting to you know try to protect itself and i'm fortunate in mastering because in the mastering world because um uh, we can you you can work pretty quickly and you can and 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 once you get to a point in your career where you're working instinctually you don't really spend all that much time trying to decide whether you're right or not you know and without working independently with the clients not in the room i don't have to kind of wait for someone else to make up their mind i you know like yeah that's what it needs and i can move forward rather rap rather rapidly um so I guess so. So the, the little punch list of things to do is understand uh, when your ears start to start to shut down, and um, and um, you know keep a keep an eye on on the levels and the clock. Um, uh, you know, set a reference level in the room and use that every day. If if you have to have a loud reference, fine, but you, you're not going to be able to stay you know keep working at that level as longer than you could if you had a, a sh softer level try to establish a softer um reference level level um and one of the things that bugs me in uh, you know to no end about mo most people's and uh, engineering environment is, is they don't have resettable volume controls they just have a, a knob I mean, at the very least, put a grease pencil mark where your reference level is, at the very right. least. But, right. you know, um, if you're going through some outboard equipment or going through a variety of things, set a reference level. Um, we, we've got sound pressure level meters, pretty accurate ones in our phones. So just set, you know, see what level you're monitoring at and at what point it feels comfortable. Try working, you know, the next day. Try working, you know, five dB lower a level and see. Force yourself to try to do that. You'll notice that you'll miss some EQ. Some some of your EQ settings and things will be wrong, but it doesn't mean you should set the level back up. You, you might, you know, you can learn to work in a in a quieter environment. Um, so that's um, know your your reference level, measure it, um, take breaks. I mean, it's it's um, I, I believe pretty. Uh, wholeheartedly in the listening to something different for a short period of time, um, even if it's even if it extends your exposure, um, gives your brain a, a, a really does a nice job of helping your brain reset. But um, I'll uh, I'll sort of in, um, incorrectly quote, but you know, you allow the listeners to go look up the information to, so that they can um, they can uh, find out the real information. But for a number of years at the Audio Engineering Society conferences, they've had a loudness panel. And there's been a, a uh, auditory scientist um, whose name doesn't come to my uh, um, my, my brain at the moment, but, but um, she would always talk about um, uh, laboratory um, uh, results that they, and they would try to correlate those to what they're seeing with people with you know hearing loss and with different types of perceptions. And uh, one of the things I found fascinating was they they made a correlation between hearing loss and and uh, occupation. <laughs> but it wasn't what you thought. You think the uh, you know you think the uh, people were around um, high volumes of, um, of of music or or sound um, you know would have the most hearing loss. But it was the jobs where your hear your ears were not responsible for your critical listening. Oh. Um, so like benign exposure to construction noise caused dramatically more hearing loss than a uh, police officer, you know, uh, firing, you know, at a, at a range, firing a weapon or, um, or uh, um, some sirens and, and other high, very, very high levels of noise, but, but at, at a heightened um, intellectual um, point. And then they had um, um, conductors and, uh, and even rock musicians in that same category. So if, it, if, if your listening was purposeful, somehow the, your brain, yeah, I, I'm like I said, I'm 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 not going to try to uh, to quote the article, but it was fascinating, um, and they made a, a very compelling argument for for um oh oh oh, and I almost I almost um, forgot the lead, the the occupation or the 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 the, the um the population that had the the least perceptive um, hearing uh, of all mankind that they tested were um sequ uh, sequestered sequ cloistered monks um, really? um uh, 
because they um, the hearing they were actually trying to tune out what their ears were telling them so that they could um, stuff and and def or define their experience through other emotions and, and other reactions and uh, you might might argue that they um, literally trained their brains to not listen closely wow and uh so it was yeah it was kind of mind it was kind of mind blowing when when she put up the chart and uh, i've always remembered that it was it was 15 years ago but the conversation uh, of being exposed rock concert levels and um and things um you know that's sort of passive exposure and uh um you don't you don't get that kind of a, a pr protection <laughs> from it yeah no um, that is brilliant um, stuff it, you're talking about well I would say, yeah, put it this way, for the professionals or, or the, the people that are, are thinking or would like to aspire to be professionals, let's just say you were, and I'll just make something about uh, you know, aspiring to be a, a, a ball player. Uh, right. You know, baseball's in season right now. Aspiring to be a ball player. You probably wouldn't have a hobby where you went out and beat up on your hands or like, you know, lifted, you know, extremely heavy things, you know, and wrenched your back out or, you know, caused yourself some other physical, you wouldn't do something that, um, that messed with your eyesight because you need to be able to be critically able to, to tell the difference between, you know, pitches as they were coming in. Um, you know, and, and if you did, it would certainly, you know, ruin your up or, or decrease your opportunities uh, uh, as an athlete um it's kind of the same thing you know you 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 um uh i do know professionals that really baby their hearing and they've extended their careers out to you know you know long into what most people oh i just bumped the microphone um but long into what they would uh, what past where you would think they would normally be able to work but they uh you know made it a habit to uh um limit their exposure to um, really loud signs like uh, uh, for me personally if i do go to a show i've always got a set of plugs with me i try to you know i'd like to hear what the show is about and if it's I, if i start to feel my ears clamping down or if it's if i don't like the mix which is pretty usually the case <laughs> then, then the plugs go in <laughs> sure no that makes that makes so much sense being being a musician being an engineer it's it's amazing how you hear things differently. Uh, I remember I used to date this girl who absolutely hated watching American Idol with me because, of course, I'm breaking it down in a way she's not hearing it. Um, what are you? Uh, what are you up to right now? What um, what projects are you working with? Uh, who are you working with in terms of? I know uh, you're working with White Snake, but uh, what are the projects you're doing right now for the listeners to know about? Uh, it's a, a really cool all analog jazz label called JMI Records. Um, they're on about their 14th or 15th release um, live in the studio, either live to analog multi-track or straight to two-track analog. Um, their most more recent most recent projects that are soon to come out includes a, a, a trio with Questlove on drums. Um, pretty avant-garde, pretty pretty out there at times, but some crazy good players. This uh, um, a young bass player named Max Girl that's just insane. Uh, Stanley Clark um, produced that um, that uh, solo bass record oh, wow. with him. So that's pretty cool. Um, I really like this label. They've, they've been doing a really, you know, just insisting on uh, the analog process. Um, even when it, you know, even when a digital process could really improve the record, they're like, no, man, we don't do digital. You know, we just don't do Good digital. So it, it's it's going to be it's going to be what it is. And um, I, you know, I really relate to that because of one of the reasons I I you know always had a recording room around me is because I really like to capture sound in the room. And so next door to my master room here, I have a a, a, a live recording space that's got an analog console and um about 15 foot ceilings about a thousand square feet um not gigantic but it's a it's an open ish space that's been treated somewhat for sound but it's still kind of lively but what i i enjoy most is um putting a one two or three musicians in the room and recording straight to two track um, um if we're going to record a lot then we might go to high-res digital but if we're going to if we're talking about just capturing some lightning in a bottle we'll go to analog two track and and then um use those masters for um for vinyl and uh, cool. so i haven't don't really have any 
branded releases out yet. I've been talking about doing this for several years. Uh, COVID kind of slowed us down, but I'm getting back into the swing of doing that. I'd love for Masters Records uh, someday in the near future to be all about this live creation, you know, capturing, you know. Moments. Just, yes, just in the studio, the live, the live moments in the studio. Absolutely. Scott, absolute pleasure to talk to you today. <laughs> so much great stuff you gave us. I know the listeners got so much out of it. I got a lot out of it. Um, it's just it's just really neat to hear your experiences, who you've worked with. And, and I really appreciate you sharing those stories with us today. Um, is there anything you want to add or promote before uh, I let you go? No, it's been my pleasure. Um, all you have to do is ask me and I start talking about music and mastering and I'll go on and on and on. But uh, <laughs> well, that's a good thing, man. I mean, it's always good to talk about music. I think music's super important in everyone's lives, you know. You know, we we focused uh, a lot of attention on the stars. I guess the one thing to mention to people is I, I work with uh, really everybody in the music business from people that are, you know, their first, they just plugged in um, a garage band and they're making their first record. And, um, you know, they're, um, um, uh, I hear from everyone. We're in independent mastering studios and, and I do um, uh, uh, hire myself out for opinions and for consulting and uh, mix evaluations pre pre-mastering mix evaluations and of course we do a, a large portion of our work is in preparation for vinyl so those are some very specific topics that, that even you know other mastering engineers like to learn about things like that so oh, absolutely and with the resurgence of vinyl it's you've you've got to be busy for sure um ladies and gentlemen Look at the uh, the notes in the summary. We'll have uh, contact information for Scott so you can get a hold of him if you're looking for him to do any mastering um, or any independent consult consultations, anything. Um, and if you enjoyed this conversation, I know you'll definitely click on those summary links. Um, Scott, thanks a lot again for coming on the show. We really do appreciate it. You're very welcome. Have a great day, my friend. Mm-hmm.